Welcome to Relentless Truth with John Warren, the podcast that extracts truth from a wide range of topics, revealing who God is, who we are, and how we relate to each other. Now, here's John with this week's powerful and practical insights. Welcome to Relentless Truth. I'm John Warren. It's good to be with you again. Please like, share, review, and subscribe to Relentless Truth. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can also go to johnwarrenmedia.com to learn more about the work we do. Also, please don't hesitate to send along a comment using our comment tab on the website, or you can email me at john at johnwarrenmedia.com. Well, we are studying, walking through, doing really a survey of the book of Romans, the beautiful truth in the book of Romans. And if you recall from our last couple of episodes, we've uh, kind of talked about the overview of the book and we've kind of worked our way through about the first half of chapter one. And you can certainly go back and listen to those episodes, that information. But the theme of the book very importantly, is uh, justification by faith, or maybe said differently, some say the theme is the righteousness of God. Those are really a theme and and a sub-theme. I guess the righteousness of God is a good way to describe all of Romans, and justification by faith is addressed in most of the letter. Paul wrote the letter to the church at Rome, obviously, somewhere around 57 AD, I think, if I remember correctly. And the church was populated by both uh, Jews and Gentiles. We estimate, historians estimate, something like 35% or, or at least a minority of Jewish people who had previously been exiled from Rome and had returned were in the church and the rest were Gentiles, 60, 65%, something like that, we think. We can also see in Paul's writing that he toggles back and forth. He called himself the apostle to the Gentiles, but he also talks to the Jewish believer and makes clear the book of Romans settles any doubt whatsoever that the gospel is for the Gentiles as well as the Jewish people. So we looked at the authorship of the book. We looked at the founding of the church at Rome, we said, although in some circles, Peter is thought of, uh, St. Peter, the Apostle Peter, thought to be the, the founder of this church, uh, we have no evidence of his ever visiting there, certainly not prior to this time period where Paul writes this letter. Paul thanked a bunch of people at the end of the letter, and he didn't mention Peter, and that would have been weird, wouldn't it? So the reason that we talked about for my particular interest in this book of the Bible, and I know I'm not alone in this, and I know a number of you know how beautiful this epistle is, but for me, and I think for a lot of people, Romans is this compendium of theology that just so well explains who God is, who man is, and how God relates to man. And that foundational understanding informs me on the totality of Scripture. And I think it's important for me just to acknowledge that I've done lots of, I think, interesting conversational interviews on this podcast, and God has blessed this effort. I'm thankful for it, thankful that you're listening and that the numbers are good and all of that, and thankful to all those guests who oh my goodness, I never thought I could record podcast episodes with, with many of those folks and, and some dear friends who, who stepped up and have been courageous. And I, I plan to invite some of them again to talk again. But notwithstanding all of that, this is the most important series that I've done. And it's not like just so many pastors, I think, who kind of walk through scripture or have Bible study podcasts. I hope we're going to just talk about, as we go, I hope it's obvious to you that we're just talking about the, the, the important themes, the important topics. We'll parse some of the words here and there, but we're not diving in. And most pastors would 
want to take a year or two to go through this book. And we're not going to do that. Now, I have some experience teaching this book of the Bible because I use it in my world religions and philosophy class at Circle Christian School. So I have the benefit. And in that class, it's sort of misnamed, but in that class, we study the Christian worldview. And it's really an apologetics class is what it is. And I wanted to anchor it in truth. And so I use uh, one of the summit books, Understanding the Times, which is a helpful book. There's nothing wrong with it, but I want to anchor the students in scripture. So we parallel it with the book of Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans. So uh, having said that, I will from time to time reference some reactions students have here and there in this book. And so let's dive in. We Last time we kind of got through verse 16 or so, but I'm going to start reading. I want to read the second half of the chapter. Paul has a couple of really long introductory sentences. He talks in verse 15, he says, so I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, or sometimes it's translated from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he goes on, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, but because God has shown it to them, for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of God from Romans chapter 1, verses 15 and following. Now, this particular section that starts in Romans one seventeen, a couple of verses in, that commonly known couple of verses, this is generally thought of as, as the section that starts to talk about this theme, the righteousness of God. The righteous shall live by faith is often a heading given to this section. It's thought that Paul is quoting from Habakkuk, said very few people ever, but he's quoting from Habakkuk 2.4. It says, behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. 
So this notion of, of living by faith is introduced here. Now, in these two verses that are so popular, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, this is verses 16 and 17, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Well, some translations say from faith to faith there, but both those verses, and I know you're probably driving or doing something other than sitting and looking at the New Testament as I'm reading this, and so it might not be so obvious to you just listening, but both of these verses start with the word for, which connects them with the previous thought, which is verse 15, and the reason I started there is to include it since this linkage is there. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are in Rome. Now, there's a lot we can say about the gospel, and Paul is going to explain the gospel very clearly. But but just imagine, I want you to just imagine the church at Rome just for a moment and think about what is going on at Rome during this time. Now, the the Jews had been exiled a couple of times because of all their talk about Christ. This was a threat to government in their minds. Now, not only that, imagine what the church at Rome might have been like, what it might have been like to have been a Christian, a Christ follower during this, this first century. First of all, Rome was a very religious place, weren't they? They were smart. They were kind of the center of the world at that time. In almost every respect, they were inventive, they were hardworking, their architecture was amazing, their population was huge, their army was incredible, they had a real legitimate empire, but they also worshipped idols, over a hundred of them. They had graven images, they worshipped images that apparently looked like people and also looked like animals. And so the actual church at Rome would have been thought of as atheists, uh, counter-cultural, counter to real spirituality, sort of those crazy people who believed that Jesus was the Son of God. It is, after all, isn't it, what we do with Jesus, Scripture teaches, that really matters. We'll, we'll encounter lots of people who say, yeah, I believe in God, or the big man upstairs, or a supreme being, or an intelligent designer. But the thing, the concept that separates true Christianity from many, many false religions is who we say Jesus is. We say he was born of a virgin. He is the son of God. And the gospel is the good news of his, his coming to this earth, condescending to this earth, being born of a virgin, living a sinless life, being executed, although a completely innocent man, being executed on a cruel Roman cross, being raised on the third day, conquering sin and death on our behalf. After his resurrection, he appeared to others and ascended and sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. So that is, in fact, the gospel. This justification by faith that we're talking about is faith in Christ, just to be clear. So when Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, you can imagine being a Roman and hearing this, a Roman citizen, a member of the church at Rome or otherwise, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because they were countercultural. And I have to just add that my students are so smart and they, it's really the families that make this Circle Christian School what it, what it really is. It's a very special place. And these are mature 11th and 12th graders that I get to be with in these classes. And they understand rather quickly that Christianity is countercultural today, much like it would have been in Rome. Now, we don't have a hundred graven images made out of gold, silver, wood, stone, etc., that we worship, but boy, do we have our idols, don't we? In fact, we boast of our idols. We also believe we're in a post-truth world, which is going to come up in just a couple minutes, which is really interesting, because I think Paul is actually addressing that in, in this section of Romans. So, it's important to say, though, that when we talk about the theme of the book being the righteousness of God, it is a characteristic of God in a sense. But what Paul's talking about here 
in verse 17, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith or faith for faith. He's not talking about an attribute of God. It represents how God treats us, how God views us. And when it says from faith to faith, commentators say that it's received by faith in Jesus Christ, that God's righteousness is imputed to us that way, and then lived by faith. It's really talking about a life characterized by faithful living. So there's kind of a cool Martin Luther quote. This is probably the only time I'll ever quote Martin Luther on this podcast, I guess. But there's a neat one that has to do with this concept. It says, and this is quoting Luther, the righteousness of God comes altogether from faith, but in such a way that there appear constant growth and constant greater clarity as it is written in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are changed into the same image from glory to glory. The words from faith to faith therefore signify that the believer grows in faith more and more so that he who is justified becomes more and more righteous in his life, not positionally, but in his life. This, he adds, in order that no one might think that he is already apprehended and so ceases to make progress. For that indeed means that he begins to fall behind. That is really curious language. But this notion of justification by faith is introduced, and then God's righteousness is introduced. Now, this is where a number of other religious systems, Mormonism pops to mind, but they're not the only one, but they teach that we are becoming little gods and little deities, and that that is not consistent with Scripture. It's really important to understand that this right standing, this justification is a, a legal term that Paul is using to explain our standing, our imputed righteousness that we get by faith in Christ, by trusting in him. If you're asking now, you're kind of scratching your head and saying, okay, when people talk to me about the gospel or I I drive by that corner and they have a bullhorn or they're passing out tracts in the mall and I glance at them, I, I, I don't get the impression. I don't, I, don't know, I don't know how to connect what you're saying here in Romans with that. And we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to chapter 3 especially. But for now, this justification by faith happens when we come to the end of our self-sufficiency, which Paul's about to jump into here, and turn from our sin. It's called repentance. And turn to God and ask him to save us by faith in Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. That is salvation. That is what being saved actually means. And we've, we've talked about that before in this podcast, but I want to just insert it right there because I think it's appropriate, given what Paul is talking about here. So we're not talking about God's attribute. We're talking about imputed righteousness. We don't become God, to be clear. Sanctification doesn't mean we're becoming little gods. It means that we're maturing in the faith. But to be justified means to be declared righteous. This word for justification or justified and righteous are very similar, related Greek words. Paul is using legal language here. He's using language of the courtroom. Much has been said about Paul and his intelligence. He's a, I think of him as a very logical, strategic thinker. Some say he would have been a great engineer. I say he would have been a great lawyer. He was blessed with amazing intellect, and he's very adept at at building an argument. If you have young students or children in your household and you want them to learn how to build an argument, how to make, how to argue, how to make an argument with a with a an argument and and supporting points or theses, I really would encourage you to study Paul and even Romans for that. He uses language of the courtroom. And he's talking about being legally forgiven here. Jesus Christ has paid the debt for our sin, and anyone justified by faith in him is going to live in the spirit of that justification. The just shall live by faith. That doesn't mean we live by faith to be justified. It means we live by faith because we are justified. Faith and imputed righteousness or imparted righteousness, that's positional truth. Faith and living righteously, 
is experiential truth. You get it? We will experience truth as we live righteously by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. Other scripture verifies this. For example, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. And sanctification is the process and future experiential or progressive work of continuing to be set apart through the whole of our lives. So, okay, let's transition now to verse 18, the human need for righteousness. Paul had this logical mind and he he jumps in here to this, this section. We're going to call this section, we're going to characterize it as verses 18 of chapter 1 of Romans through verse 32, really through the, the end of the chapter. And the point, and you, you might have this, this subheading in your Bible, the point is that immoral people are condemned. Now, I want to just, at this point, I want to peck the camera up slightly, and I, I'm going to do this a lot, and it's going to sound redundant, but I'm going to say a parenting phrase. I can't stress this enough. <laughs> this cannot be stressed enough for us Christians to understand, and that is our problem, Adam and Eve's problem, and all people between them and us have had the problem of sin in our lives that is driven, is motivated by, is prompted by our desire for self-sufficiency. Sometimes we call it self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, whatever you want to call it. It's about our being secure in and of ourselves. And where that sort of gets us off track is the self-reliance or self-sufficiency gets us off track because we begin to picture, and I'm not sure we do this consciously, but practically we picture God on our level or us on his level. And much has been said about who God is, who man is, how God relates to man, even on this podcast in previous episodes. So I'm not going to beat the topic to death, but I do have my students walk up to a whiteboard and write all of the characteristics of God on the first day of this class because I want to be sure that we understand that God is transcendent. He's apart from us. He's much bigger than us. He's outside of us. He's, we're not fully capable of comprehending him. We can comprehend enough of him. We can comprehend some things he's disclosed to us about his character, but we can't attain that level. And man is subject to God, created in his image, fallen, born in sin, and we know that, and yet we sort of want to get up, dust ourselves off, and walk around and superimpose ourselves over God, and we say things like, can you believe, I just can't believe that a holy God, that a loving God would do X. And we do that all the time as if God is subject to us, not us subject to God. Now, I don't like, there's a kind of a bumper sticker-ish cliche that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm not asking, I'm not saying just shut up and get in line because that's not how God operates. That's not the theology that Paul is going to talk about here. But it is important as we look at this to realize that our self-sufficiency, our self-reliance is what Paul's talking about here. In chapter one, he's going to now at this point, starting in verse 18, he's going to talk about the self-sufficient person who says, I've got this. I can do what I want to do. I can resist some of the natural things that God has set up, and I can do what I want. And Paul is going to talk about the implications of that. But then while the rest of us, or the rest of you, because I can't do this, while the rest of you say, well, I don't do those things. I've never done that. I've never been tempted to be immoral as Paul I've never had a, a gay urge in my life, just to be blunt, because Paul's going to go there. Many of you know he talks about homosexuality here. I've never, I've never committed sexual sin, or I've never done those other things. I've never, I don't believe this to be true of anyone, but I've never lied, or I've, I, I've never been angry, or done some of the other things he talks about near the end of chapter one. I, I just don't live that way. I might have done those things years ago, but that's not me. Well, Paul's going to capture you too in chapter two and he calls it moralism he the, the moralist the person who says no 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 i'm good enough i'm self-reliant i'm self-sufficient 
because I can do this. I, I go to church. I volunteer for everything. I'm in leadership. I've been confirmed by the elders or deacons or the board. And I have a very important role and I execute that role. I read my Bible every day. I have a checklist that I live by and I do pretty well at it and I'm being sanctified and I'm good enough. I don't care about justification, but I care about, I care about earning credibility with God and obeying his commandments. And that's what I do. That, that's the moralist. And Paul says, when he gets to chapter three, he says, no, no, no. You're both the immoral people in chapter one, the moralist in chapter two, you're both condemned. It's interesting that he says there's none righteous, no, not one. And we're going to talk about that. Why, why in the world do you have to say no, not one? You know why you say it? You say it for emphasis because he knows that the Pharisees are going to read this and one of them is going to say, oh, but I am. I'm righteous. I've achieved. I've attained. I would never do what those immoral people do. Well, I believe, I don't really rank sins necessarily or sinful conditions, or, but I do think about philosophy a lot. And I would say the person who philosophically believes that moralism is their thing, that they might have a tougher time of coming to repentance than the immoral person. The immoral person knows they're guilty, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. They know they're guilty. The moralist doesn't think they're good. They, they think everything's good. I'm checking the boxes. I've got a checklist. If I don't have a physical checklist, I've got one in my head. And I'm clicking them off and I'm getting it done and I'm not like those people. All right. Anyway, to get back on track, immoral people are condemned. God hates sin. His wrath is a holy aversion to all that is evil. Listen to this. God's wrath is as essential to divine righteousness as love and mercy are. Listen to verse 18 again. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Our unrighteousness just denies the truth. I call this podcast Relentless Truth. We worked hard. Mark Stees, a good marketing guy in Indiana, Josh Brown, who his company, his productions produces this podcast. We brainstormed about the right name for this podcast and talked about who the target audience is and what my lane would be, what the theme would be. And we came up with Relentless Truth. And I often second guess those decisions, but I've never second guessed that one because I don't want to do this. What Paul is talking about in Romans 18, I don't want to suppress the truth. And just think about this. When we sin, we're actually choosing the worst path, the worst of the alternatives. The better, we're denying and we're choosing the worst. It feels intuitively right to a sinner to sin, but because we're caught up in our self-reliance, our self-sufficiency, but really we're just suppressing the actual truth. So verse 19 says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now, this is interesting. We, this word suppress, suppressing the truth has the idea of holding down or keeping back, holding back. It's really pulling the reins back on the truth. Those who are unrighteous and ungodly restrain the truth of God's righteousness. We kind of shield God's righteousness. We limit it. We don't thwart God entirely but we do hold back, hold down, keep back his righteousness when we suppress the truth. All people have sufficient knowledge of God. And we just read verses 19 and 20. We read 19. All all people have sufficient knowledge of God to make them responsible to God. Nature reveals a supreme being. It attests to God's transcendence. People who suppress innate knowledge, even innate knowledge, are guilty before God. Verse 20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So, for a person to suggest, and I I don't like these debates that where you have an atheist and a Christian and they debate. I, I, I mean, 
if you like that sort of thing, great. I don't think that's real apologetics. I don't think it's productive. I've never seen, although I know there have been some atheists who've converted to Christianity. I believe that happens through the expression of love to them, not saying, you know, your your argument is logically flawed. It is logically flawed, but I've never seen one of them sort of take their palm and plant it on their forehead and say, oh, well, I should have thought of that. I think I'll convert to your side. But in those debates, and just among people I know over the years, I find that people who deny God's existence and claim to be atheists still talk about God. They still reference, they have a God-sized hole in their hearts, among other things. But they'll express things in terms of God, in terms of an intelligent designer, in terms of beauty that is natural, and so on. I think scripture verifies this. And I'm not saying there aren't real atheists out there. There are. But they've been blinded, as we're about to read, over the years. I believe in man's natural state, God has disclosed to everyone what Paul is saying here, and the rest of scripture verifies this, that God has revealed himself to everyone, period. No one is without excuse. Do I? Can I explain that for somebody down on the south end of the Amazon who's in a tribe who's never seen anyone else and never had a Bible? No, I really can't, but I believe it to be true nonetheless. And you're going to hear me say that a lot because I believe that scripture says it and I believe it to be true. I believe God can disclose himself however he chooses to do so. If we look back through history, back into antiquity, we see examples of that. So, anyway, we've talked about God's transcendence. The, the world attests to his transcendence. His bigness is, is kind of the way I like to say it. And then in verses 21 through 23, we read about fallen people developing an errant reasoning process that really conjures up human solutions. The Bible calls it futile speculations. Listen to this. For although they knew God, so they have knowledge of God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, I mean, he's hitting the Romans right in the mouth here, punching them right in the mouth for their idolatry. But you know, he's, he's punching us in the mouth too. I think of our universities, I, th- I think even of some ministries that don't honor God or give thanks to him. I mean, there are lots of great Bible teaching, preaching, honoring, God-glorifying ministries for sure. But there are others that aren't so God-honoring and glorifying. And there's this tendency in our universities, and I, I'm not against our, our daughter went to a big state university and still is working on a PhD at one, and certainly respect the intellect and the, and the instruction that goes on in some of those places. But I think when we abandon God philosophically, when we resort to self-sufficiency, self-reliance, we really claim to be wise and become fools, like Paul said. We exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. We do that all the time without carving idols out of wood, stone, gold, silver, and so on. We worship intellectual accomplishments that are empty. Now we're in choose-your-own-pronoun world or even your own gender. We've gone way past just choose-your-own-sexual-preference. And now we choose your own gender and, and so on. And if you notice, their foolish hearts were darkened. There's this reprobation. There's this inability to see clearly that happens. Now, I, I have, I don't usually talk about this, but I have an eye condition called macular degeneration. Now, I don't have the worst form of it, and I'm not going to get in the weeds on this, but I, it does have to be watched every six months or so, and I have to take special vitamins and so on. But with a retina issue like that, I, I'm, I'm beginning to, to notice that if I walk into a dark room, I don't see as well. But I know practically throughout my life and throughout the lives of others and getting to interact with about 100 students a year, I know that there's this darkening that can happen when we sin. There's this inability, there's this darkening of our hearts that Paul is describing. So 
I can relate to it a couple of ways. My vision is getting just a little darker and I need a little more light to read. I think that's part of the aging process too. But I also see that that when we sin, we claim to be wise. When we engage in self-sufficiency, when we elevate ourselves over God, over where we should be, our hearts are darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. This this applies to us is all I'm saying. And it's not just something that applied to people who carved idols. Their idols were just a little more clear, a little more obvious. Ours might be a little more subtle. I don't think they're so subtle, really. But if you, if you look at our, our worship of entertainment, talk about, you know, an exercise we could go through is how does economics really work? And why is it worth paying an athlete $25 million a year to throw a football? I mean, it's worth that. It's worth it in economic terms. It's because they have value. It's because of what we value. Because all the sponsors say, yes, that's valuable to us. People will watch. People will like. People will click. People will obsess over. People will gamble on. People will focus on this. And while they're focused, we'll sell them some stuff. And we'll pay you for the privilege to do that. And so the real economic value, and and then you look at teachers and pastors and others who we don't value. And they're always talking about compensation and how it's inadequate. Well, you know, it's kind of the entry level salary in the NFL is, I think it's over a million dollars. I think the league minimum is over a million now. And many are making 20, 25 million or more. Same is true in baseball and basketball. And then you look at entertainers who are incredibly wealthy. You, you, I always do the math on concerts. Elton John just came to town again on another tour and I just I, I looked up the uh, kind of the minimum ticket price and did some rough math on the capacity of the Orlando Arena. My goodness, somebody's making a fortune on those tours and that doesn't even consider all the video rights, all the affinity items sold and all the concessions and everything else associated with that. So we we do have our idols. We we also we also have idols that look good. You know, we have uh, productivity is an idol of mine. Getting up early and working hard. I used to brag that I could get more done by eight o'clock than most people get done in an entire day. That that can be an unhealthy idol. There are other idols that look good. We can even idolize uh, good things and turn them into something that takes our focus away from glorifying God. So enough about that. Verse 24 is where we sort of turn a corner there are really two reasons why men and women without God are lost and, and deserve condemnation. One, revelation of God in nature that he just talked about in, in 19 and 20. And the other is the revelation of God in their conscience, which he talked about in verses 21 to 23. Man is without excuse. People who suppress the truth will not experience the truth. John fourteen six is a good reference to maybe look at later. But the problem as we launch into verse 24 is that immoral people have become degenerate. And I know we don't like language like that. We're a name-calling world, boy, on, on Twitter and even Instagram and Snapchat and all of social media, still Facebook and others. We're a name-calling people, but we don't like, we don't like it when somebody calls sin, sin. We don't like the word immoral. We don't like the word degenerate. But the destination of ungodly or unrighteous behavior is always idolatry. And often, if that path continues, let me just say it plainly. Paul screams this in verses 24 to 31 here. If that path continues, that path of living in sin, being self-righteous, I can do what I want. I don't have to listen to God. I can deny all that truth that Paul has just talked about that is revealed to me that one of the destinations is sexual impurity. And Paul's going to launch into a discussion on that. So that's the end of or the result of ungodly, unrighteous living is sexual impurity. So if you struggle with that, I, I bet you can look back any kind of sexual impurity. I bet you can look back at your life and say, yeah, I, I denied who God is. I, I lived unrighteously to get to that place. You probably didn't just launch into 
sexual impurity. It's clearly a, a progression, as Paul describes it here. So they degraded themselves, Paul says. Let's listen to this. Therefore, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. So that's the section on, on God's righteousness. So he's, he's clearly shown to us who he is. But look, listen to verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because, listen to this, they exchanged the truth about God, even though he's revealed himself as I just read, the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. That sounds good to do. We're supposed to worship and we're supposed to serve each other, not worship each other, but but we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So they've degraded themselves, he's saying, the immoral people have, by worshiping the wrong thing. So it's not that they don't worship. So... Before we harp on people for, for not worshiping, we ought to think about this. The, the, the issue isn't that we should worship. The issue is that we should worship God, that we should glorify him. They're worshiping the wrong thing. And look what happens in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And listen, this is harsh. It's hard to hear. If you've never heard this before, never read this before, you're going to be shocked at this. But here he goes. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And then verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So he's talking about they, they degraded themselves by worshiping the wrong thing, and then, and then Paul jumps in and condemns homosexuality and illicit sex of all types. And, and to, to do that isn't hate speech, by the way. It's love talk. To say this is wrong is not hate speech. It's love talk. Now, I had the privilege of being on the Exodus International Board. You you might have seen this documentary on Netflix called Pray Away. I think that's what it's called. Features my friend Ann Polk, who's been on this podcast, and uh, her ex-husband. And I will just say this about my Exodus experience. Exodus is a parent organization. It's, it's kind of an umbrella organization for a bunch of ministries, many, many of which are still out there and run by people who do amazing work. Uh, the Restored Hope Network has kind of replaced Exodus in the U.S. to some degree. And Anne runs that organization well. But I'll tell you what overwhelmed me about that work. I fall into a, a category they call ever straight, meaning I've never been gay, never str- struggled with homosexuality. But I've struggled with sin. I've struggled with sexual sin, just to be plain. And I don't even like saying that on a podcast, but it's true. And this is, after all, relentless truth. But the beauty of the ministry that goes on there in the homosexual community, Christians who are dedicated to these principles Paul is talking about do amazing work. My friend Joe Dallas was on this podcast a while back, and he's involved in ministry as well. Stephen Black, uh, Rob Gagnon is a professor who is also involved in these ministries, and there are many others. I, I shouldn't start naming names. I'm going to leave some people out. But in any case, Romans 1 is not, I'm, I'm about to prove to you that Romans 1 is not just the homosexuality is sin chapter. Paul's driving at a bigger point. Listen to what he says. So he just said, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with, listen to this list, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, Oh boy, now he's including the rest of us. Listen to the rest of this list. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. 
though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Now, there's a lot we could say about this section. Paul has just run the gauntlet on all of sin. And I often ask my students, you know, please raise your hand if you've ever told a lie. Well, everyone in the room raises their hands because, again, they're smart circle students who were raised in amazing families and they understand this. But even disobedience to parents, faithlessness, heartlessness, ruthlessness, coveting, malice, hating, all manner of unrighteousness, and he, and, he, and he names them, even those things appear, to be, based on their being listed here, to be part of a progression that can lead to a hardening of our hearts. Now, Paul's going to warn in chapter two, and I've already said this, that, you know, don't let that list and your effort to, to not go down that slippery slope toward hardness of heart, don't let that make you think you can rely on yourself as a moralist. You cannot. You are justified by faith and we are to live by faith. But we need to be aware of this list. We need to be aware of the fact that there is a progression. And the progression ends up in usually with most people in sexual sin. And God spells out very clearly in scripture what, what happens there. In fact, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, if you recall, there's a section where, I can't remember, I, I think Matthew 7-ish, where he talks about the fact that, oh, so you haven't murdered, you know, have you hated? You're guilty of murder. So you haven't committed adultery. Have you lusted? You've, you've committed adultery. And, and he goes through several other sins. So this is about our, our hearts, the sinful state of our hearts. It's about the implications of the fall, but it is about our behavior. Our behavior does matter. Our walking by faith is something we participate in, and, and it's important. So the, these people, by the way, Paul's making this clear, isn't he? They know in verse 32, God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. These are not happy little sinners. If you've ever lived like I did for a period of years, like I did for a period of years as a young adult, I want to be clear about this. I want to, I want to confess this publicly to you. We aren't, people who live in sin are not happy little sinners. They are miserable Misery loves company. And what Paul is saying is they know that God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, so their hearts are hard. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They look for packs of people who do that. They look to run in herds of people, uh, in groups, in peer groups who condone their sin. We all like to be praised and have our sin condoned. And Paul says, sin is so blinding that we can, although we know that the wages of sin is death, Paul's going to say later in Romans 6, although, although they know they deserve to die, those who practice such things deserve death. They not only do, so, so this is a, they not only do them, but give approval of those who practice them. So this is group approval of sin. And if you notice, They'll run in packs, people who justify sin. We will run in packs and we will justify each other's sins and we'll say such good things to each other and be so supportive. You know, it's so important. People will say that we love each other. And what that means is that we never talk like this. Well, no, to the contrary. If we don't talk like this, we aren't being loving. If we really understand what agape is, that is genuinely caring about the, the needs of the other person, in a self-sacrificial way that isn't based on reciprocity, if that's who we really are, then sharing truth is imperative. Now, we've got to do it in love. This passage doesn't say, go out and find some homosexuals and some transgender folks and, and whatever other kind of deplorably sinful sexual behavior you can find and scream this at them. That's not what this is about. In fact, Paul, in that litany of other sins in verses 29 and following, he's captured all of us. It's about 
man's self-sufficiency. I can't say it enough, and I'm going to say it more, and I'm sorry. I know it's redundant. You get tired of hearing it. Man's self-reliance, man elevating man over God. That's what this looks like. The implications of the, of the fall, and somehow the implications of being Adam and Eve before the fall, make us vulnerable to this sin of self-reliance. So next week, we're going to talk about Romans chapter two. We're going to go there. We're going to talk about moralism and it's going to hurt. But the moralist is really interesting because they look so good. And oh my goodness, we're so pious and we're so godly-ish. And Paul's going to address us. Then he's going to talk about Jewish people and Gentiles. And some people get lost in that language. But then in Romans three, the next week in two weeks, We're going into the courtroom. Paul paints a beautiful judicial picture using judicial language, and we're going to go there. We're just going to hit the highlights. People like Paul Washer and other theologians I respect can preach for hours on just a little section of Romans 3, starting in verse 19 or 21, somewhere around there. And you can teach and preach for hours if you parse every word, and we're going to we're going to talk about just the key concepts. This is unbelievable. Then, then listen to this. In chapter four, Paul brings a couple of witnesses into the courtroom. And guess who he brings? Abraham and David. And he says, they are my witnesses because they were justified by faith. Paul's case building, his logic is just amazing. I hope you see that here. I hope this is coming across in this format. It is a privilege to get to be with you each week. I appreciate so much your sharing, uh, sending out email blasts to friends saying, hey, you got you to gotta watch this, uh, listen to this rather. Send links to my website, subscribe through whatever channels you, you use, whether it's Spotify or Apple Music or Google Play. Just your supportive notes sent to john at johnwarrenmedia.com or on our contact page at uh, johnwarrenmedia.com are, are just so valued and, and it, it's so encouraging such a privilege to do this work I look forward to hearing from you so please do like share review and subscribe to Relentless Truth and next week God willing we will dive right into chapter 2 of Romans until then thanks for listening to Relentless Truth with John Warren please consider sharing this podcast and subscribe to receive future episodes. Connect with John regarding your comments, questions, and show ideas through johnwarrenmedia.com or at John Warren Media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. That's all for this episode. Join us next week for another edition of Relentless Truth with John Warren.